Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The show dedicated to exploring and amplifying the world's underappreciated conservation stories. The stories that inspire me and I hope will inspire you too. I'm your host Jack Baker and welcome to the final episode of series 5, the final episode of our Africa series. I'm so sorry, I can't believe it's coming to an end so soon, but I can only make it up to you by delivering you one of my favourite interviews that I have ever done with such a with a wonderful, amazing, fabulous guest. So I, I hope you'll forgive me uh, for, for for it being the end for now, um, because I am joined by the absolutely brilliant Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, Uganda's first wildlife vet and the author of Walking with Gorillas. She's here to tell us all about her journey from the little girl who would play with the neighbour's vervet monkey all the way to world-leading scientist. A world-leading scientist who's worked with some of the most incredible, incredible people like Dr. Jane Goodall and spearheaded some of the most interesting and unique projects that we've ever talked about on the show. We also talk about her organisation, Conservation Through Public Health, the essentiality of interdisciplinary working, the importance of working with communities as well as government stakeholders, and how tourism has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, we bring it all back to the little animal that inspires us all and inspired the show, the pangolin, and we hear about uh, Dr. Gladys's incredible experiences with it um, that make me very, very, very jealous. Um, and we talk about why everybody should pursue their conservation dreams. Before I let the interview play, I also want to say a quick, quick thank you to everybody who has supported the show this series. Whether it be through sharing, subscribing, reviewing, or listening, you've all made the biggest impact on the show. You've helped the show reach over 100 countries now. You've made my life so much brighter and fuller and I can only thank you for all of that. Thank you so, 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 so much. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, this may be the end of series five, but you know there's going to be so much more. So please, like, subscribe. Um, I'm already planning season six, so wherever you're listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Um, follow the show on social media at Pangolin Podcast. Leave us a nice review do whatever just yeah stick around because you know I'm not done yet you know there's still far much far much more far more <laughs> lots more talking inside me um and I'm so excited to keep the ball rolling um I just yeah I can't believe we're at the end of this series and there's going to be another one soon so yeah thank you thank you thank you love you all thank you um now before I get too emotional about the whole thing I just want to say Thank you so much, one more time, uh, to everybody and to all of the amazing guests we've had this series all the way back in March with uh, Charles and ever since there with Lucas and um, Rex and everybody who's come after that and the replay episodes with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation and the Lemur Conservation Network, everybody, thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, Christine and everybody, you've just been all so wonderful and amazing. So thank you to all of you. Thank you to all of you for listening. And without further ado, one last time, let's get started.
and welcome back to the show. I'm now joined by Dr. Gladys Kalima Zikusoka, whose memoir, Walking with Gorillas, The Journey of an African Wildlife Vet, has been taking the conservation world and the world at large by storm. I feel like I've heard so many people talking about you recently. You're popping up on social media and all over the place. And so it's really exciting for me to get to kind of sit with you and chat about the book and some of your other work. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jack Baker. It's been <laughs> wonderful. I've, um, it's great to know that you're from Scotland because I've just been in Edinburgh. Um, we had a book event at the Waterstones in Edinburgh last Thursday, which went really well. And now they have signed copies for everyone because they got me to sign so many copies before I left. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we were just chatting about that. <laughs> I need to go along. I'm going to go along and pick up a copy because I feel like there's nothing better than having a book signed by the author. I have like my prized possession just now on a shelf is I went into a bookshop in Edinburgh recently and they had signed copies of David Attenborough's latest book. And yes. it's like, a, it's like, it sits on like a plinth now in my house. So I need to go along and pick one up. Um, <laughs> and it's, yes, I'm so excited to, to have you here to kind of chat alongside the signed copy of the book. I'll have this to remember you by as well. So it'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, Wonderful. But no, <laughs> Thank you so much for, for being here. I, I guess like to get us started, I gave you a brief introduction there as to kind of the book and who you are a little bit, but I always think it's best to hand over to you and the guest because you know who you are and you know your work a lot better than I do. So could you introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners, tell them a little bit about who you are and, and what it is that you do? I'm Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, founder and Chief Executive Officer of a grassroots NGO and charity called Conservation Through Public Health. We promote biodiversity conservation by enabling people to coexist with gorillas and other wildlife through improving the health of the people and improving the health of the wildlife and the livestock and, and, and the community livelihoods so that people can not have to enter the forest to poach or collect firewood. And the reason we started conservation through public health is because we found out that people and animals were making each other sick. Um, my first uh, entry into conservation was working as setting up a wildlife club, actually, and then mm -hmm. setting up a veterinary unit in the Uganda Wildlife Authority as their first vet. Um, and that got me really, it was an amazing first job. And But it also got me to understand how important people were in conservation and how we needed to address the needs of people if we we're going to keep the wildlife healthy and their habitat secure. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that's that's fascinating. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear that not only was it your first job, you were the first person to do it in Uganda, I believe. So that's, it, it must have been kind of, an intimidating but exciting opportunity to be like I I will be the first and I wonder how you when obviously now kind of you've got your book and people are hearing your story and kind of you'll go on to inspire kind of probably the next generation of of vets in in these kind of roles but how did you first get into it because I imagine like a lot of the time people look up to somebody and that's how they want that's how they decide what they want to be they look up to their parents or they look up to a celebrity or they look up to somebody they know like how who inspired you and how did you get interested in this being the first at it that's so interesting to me <laughs> um i would say that i grew up in a home with lots of pets my older brother mm -hmm. also loved animals so he used to bring stray cats and dogs mm -hmm. home 
And at the age of 12, I felt like I wanted to be a vet. Mm-hmm. And then I got an opportunity to set up a wildlife club. But even before that, we got an unusual pet across the road, a velvet monkey. And velvet monkeys are very common in Uganda. They're very, in fact, people mm-hmm. consider them as pests because they come and eat people's mangoes and everything there. Mm-hmm. But at the time in um, the 1970s, this particular velvet monkey was owned by our next door neighbor, the Cuban ambassador mm-hmm. and his wife. And he always used to like to come home and cause havoc. He'd pull the cats and dogs' tails, <laughs> steal food from the kitchen. He was a very mm-hmm. naughty monkey. And because I was around eight years old and my sibling I follow was five and a half years older than me, we were not really playing together. And so the animals became my companions, if you could say. And so the monkey used to like coming home to play with me as well, because at the Cuban ambassador's home, there were no children and pets. And our home mm-hmm. had all these interesting things for the monkey. So one time I was yeah. playing the piano, practicing, and I felt like I wasn't alone. And I saw the monkey was looking at me in the window. So I said, let me see what he'll do. So I came out of the room and to see his reaction, he sat down on the stool and played one note. And I was like, whoa, this, he's so intelligent. <laughs> he played one mm-hmm. note with one finger. And I was like, not only do his fingers look like mine, but he can actually play the piano. So of course mm-hmm. I ran back and he ran across the road. But it was my first entry into how fascinating primates can be. Mm-hmm. And then I got an opportunity to set up a wildlife club in my high school in Uganda, Chibuli Secondary School. And that was a life-changing time for me because we took the students to the national park. And uh, it was one of the first national parks created in Uganda. It's called Queen Elizabeth National Park, named after mm-hmm. the Queen of England. And when I was in the park, it was amazing to be there with nature and, and the mm-hmm. children were about 20 of us with the biology teacher but what kind of shocked me is that there were no predators so there were no lions mm-hmm. no leopards and they said they had been poached and killed uh, most of the elephants had gone to Democrat, neighboring democratic republic of congo and they said that we could actually have walking safaris which is really wonderful to walk in the bush but i felt sad that there were not as many animals i expected to see and so it made me, I felt like maybe if I'm a vet who works with wildlife, we can bring the wildlife back. But at that time, that role hadn't been there in Uganda. But I felt, you know, if I could attend to animal welfare with wild animals, I could make a difference. And then I started vet school in the UK. I went to Royal Vet College, University of London. Very exciting. And we were mainly, of course, being trained on domestic animals because those are the main animals that vets work on, not only in mm-hmm. UK, but all over the world. But they did allow me to work with animals of my choice in the holidays. So when I came back to Uganda, Christmas holiday, I worked with captive chimpanzees in the Entebbe Zoo, which is more mm-hmm. like an orphanage. And over there, they had a lot of uh, chimpanzees which were victims of the bushmeat trade. They killed the mom, the mom and eaten the mom, but the baby's too small to eat. So they try and sell them baby. And those babies ended up at the Uganda Wildlife Education Center. Mm-hmm. Now it's called the Uganda Wildlife Education Center. And what I learned from that is how intelligent they were also, just like Poncho. They used to like escaping from the cages because they were flimsy cages. When you weren't looking, they'd open the fence and run out. (laughs) 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 And then you'd have to bring them back in and they like being hugged when they were brought back in. And I thought they're intelligent, but they also need their moms. They were still quite young. You know, they're so needy. They wanted to be cuddled. Then after that, uh, a year, I think a year later, I got a chance to work with wild chimpanzees in Budongo Forest under Professor Bannon Reynolds, who's an Oxford professor, 
who had started the Budongo Forest Project. But during that time, I found out that there was a talk for Dr. Jane Goodall. Um, they mm -hmm. advertised at the vet school, saying that she's going to someone's going to be talking about chimpanzees in Tanzania. And I got mm -hmm. very excited about that. I'm like, wow, I really need to watch this. So I went to the talk. I, I got my sister to come with me. She was doing a master's in business administration mm -hmm. at London Business School. I, I was like a bit scared to go on my own, but I convinced her to come with me. So oh, there's a talk about animals in Africa. So she came. And when we, after the talk, her and I were the only Africans in the audience. So when, after the talk, I went, I insisted on going to meet Dr. Jane Goodall. I bought one of her books and she was very happy to see me. Um, and that's, then I got so inspired by her work and I thought this is possible. You can actually go out and work with animals in the bush. It's really possible to do that. And so I went ahead and, and uh, told her that I'd been in Budongo and it turned out that she knew Professor Vernon Reynolds very well. And she wanted to also find out, can you hear the noise? A little bit, but it's a little bit, yeah. Okay. But it's just starting. It's, I can keep quiet it? as it goes. It's just flying, a plane flying over. It's oh, someone. That's, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I might leave this in because it just it adds context for like where you are. Like that's so okay. where is it where is it that you are that there's planes flying overhead? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And so and so I after I told her like I knew Vernon and I and I was I just so excited about it all. Then a year later, two years later, I finally got I got to work with the mountain gorillas. Um, in Brindy, and that was a life-changing experience for me because when I got to work with them, I read about the late Dr. Dan Fosih, who, together with Dr. Jane Goodall, were considered the trimates of Louis Leakey, Professor Louis Leakey. There was another lady called Dr. Brite Gaudikas, who studied orangutans. I also went to her talks in London, and mm -hmm. I was just being inspired by these two very dynamic ladies, plus mm -hmm. the legendary, the legend of Dr. Dan Fosih. So when I got to Brindy, um, I felt, okay, I'm kind of doing what they were doing, you know, several years ago. So I think I would say that seeing women like me going out there and doing these things in the bush gave me a lot of courage and inspiration. And so it was a combination of factors that led me to where I am. But, mm -hmm. but I could say that when I did get to Bwindi and I saw how vulnerable the gorillas were to human disease, yeah. um, because actually when I got there, I wasn't feeling well for a week, so I couldn't even see them myself. And my supervisor, who was also a woman, my direct supervisor, she dropped me off. She was a vet, wildlife vet. She had been working as a vet with, in Rwanda with Mountain Gorilla Vet Project, which was started on the request of Dr. Diane Fossey when she saw gorillas were being snared. When she came to Uganda, she was now starting a new NGO called International Gorilla Conservation Program. She was the country director. And that NGO was starting a new way of conservation within Bwindi, which was engaging communities by making sure they benefit from tourism. And so her NGO was setting up proper tourism guidelines to make sure that people are healthy and they follow guidelines when they visit gorillas, but they were also helping with community conservation and they were helping the Uganda government to set this up. So she dropped me off, um, introduced me to everyone and collected me one month later. And by that time, I had learned mm -hmm. how to look after myself, how to, how to engage with people, how to conduct research on my own. I'd got to meet the gorillas, which was totally amazing. And I'd got to understand how tourism is contributing to conservation. So at the end of it, I felt, why don't I just become a full-time wildlife vet so that I can, the gorillas, which are so few in number, 
I can help to increase their numbers because I felt that there were just so few in number and there were only about 300 in Windy at the time, 650 mm -hmm. overall, and I felt if we don't do something, we're gonna, these animals are going to go extinct. So it, it was a combination of factors that led me to where I am. And so when I wrote to the executive director of Uganda National Park, who also gave me permission to do this research, um, I was looking at parasites in gorillas visited by tourists and two tourist groups and one research group and parasites and bacteria. When I sent in my report and I said, you need a vet, and this is what a vet does. Um, and he was like, a vet does for wildlife. I was very excited when three weeks later, because those days there was no email, he sent me a, a, a letter <laughs> saying, your job is waiting for you. I was like, wow, this is so exciting. So that's kind of how it all happened. <laughs> uh, that's, it's an amazing story. And it's interesting because it proves so many of the things of like, I feel like we talk a lot about why it's important for like, young people to be exposed to nature and see people who inspire them and see people who like they can relate to and they want to be like and they want to be kind of inspired to be so it's amazing to see that kind of all of these things add up and make your story so it's like you are li like living proof of all of these things that I feel like get talked about a lot of the time but it's Thank sometimes you. hard to, to find the proof of and so it's amazing to hear that like yes it, it's a fascinating fascinating story and I think it's really interesting how you've kind of weaved together these kind of like love for wildlife and then the health aspect and then all of it comes together. And then the understanding of not just wildlife health and not just human health as these kind of separate bubbles, but also the understanding then of kind of all of these things interact with each other and all of these things go alongside and that we're not two separate things. We all mm -hmm. exist on this planet together. It's really, really interesting. Really, really <laughs> interesting. Um, Thank you. And Yes, I feel like I could like I could spend hours just asking you, but like, what's what's it like to meet Jane Goodall in real life? But we won't go down that route. I feel like that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. What I want to ask you about is your work today, um, and I want to I th I guess specifically I, the thing that kind of interests me out of the thread that kind of came through all of that is as I was saying the health aspect, and a concept that I've heard mentioned kind of around your work a lot of the time is this idea of one health and you've talked about kind of public health and all of these things coming together and I wonder if you could explain what one health is and how that comes into the work as well and yeah what is it for the for the listeners because I think it's a really interesting thing to to talk about yes okay and actually before I go into that I'm just so excited that Dr Jane Goodall wrote the forward for the book <laughs> <laughs> I saw <laughs> having that. that having that we're talking about her I was just amazing it was yeah. yeah, she was the most perfect person to write the full one. <laughs> I, I was at a, I was in an event last year and they gave one of the prizes that they gave away was one of the doctor, they had like a raffle and they were giving away one of the Jane Goodall Barbie dolls, oh, which are wow. like made with sustainable pra like plastic. And I was like, I want one of those. And there is a mate, like she, like, yeah, I think she's just one of those people that it must have been such an honor for like her to, you have to have, her to have inspired you to follow this path and then for her to write this thing. That's that's amazing. Like, it must have been incredible. Really. And it it is a really amazing forward because she writes so well. And she mm. knows she's been following my work for so many years. So no, it's, it's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would say with One Health, it's something that I discovered. Actually, mm. to tell you the truth, before I even started working professionally as a vet, I started to discover mm. One Health. When I got mm -hmm. to Buwindi Forest, and, I, and as soon as I arrived at the forest and I was coughing and sneezing, 
I just thought, what is going on here? My throat was burning and I, I could not, like I wasn't allowed to see the gorillas. And I thought after coming all this way, wanting to see the gorillas for so many years, I may actually not even see them. And there were no clinics there at the time, so I couldn't even go for antibiotics to get better quickly. I just had to get better naturally. That was very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to just keep going with stories about the gorillas that people were telling me they did this today, the Peace Corps volunteers, they did this today, that today, and taking my sample pots to the rangers to collect samples, mm-hmm. non-invasive fecal samples from the night nests. So when I finally got to see them, and I was like, now I understand why I needed to be healthy to see them. Mm-hmm. And I was hired as a first vet. The reason why Dr. Droma was convinced I should be hired is because they had it in their plans to hire a vet because guerrilla tourism had just begun and they were concerned that tourists could bring a fatal flu such as COVID-19. So they thought they needed a vet to make sure the gorillas are healthy and not picking up diseases from people, mm-hmm. especially tourists coming in from abroad. But um, so that's why another reason why they thought they should hire me, although I pushed the issue, they probably hired me sooner than they were going to hire a vet because I wrote him and I gave him a list of this is what a vet does, etc. Um, and But once I got hired, obviously, they got me to do so many things, including moving mm-hmm. animals and elephants and giraffes. But then one thing that they did, yeah, they're like, now we have a vet. Do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> but, one, but one thing that I did um, find out that, though, is um, I got a call nine months into the job telling me the gorillas are sick. They have a strange disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually was a Pisco who, call, who contacted us. And she said to me that they are developing white scaly skin and they're losing hair. And so I was like, really? What could that be? Um, so I went to my, a human doctor friend of mine who had also studied in the UK as a medical mm-hmm. doctor in London. And I asked her, what is the most common skin disease in people? And she said to me, scabies. Because she said to me, low-income groups of people in Uganda who have very poor hygiene end up picking up diseases like scabies. Mm-hmm. So I there's a dose for there's a drug for scabies ivermectin which is used in animals commonly mm-hmm. and I felt that um I took it with me as we went up yeah. to investigate this case and I happened to travel with a vet who had worked with cheetahs in Masai Mara a Kenyan vet who had come to do a consultancy to evaluate the needs the veterinary needs of the wildlife authority mm-hmm. so he had seen scabies in cheetahs in Masai Mara that are heavily visited by many tourist vehicles Mm-hmm. Um, and those that want didn't have scabies, so he attributed it to stress. So we went to this group, it, only, it was down to four individuals um, and six people visiting the, the gorillas and we felt maybe stress. It did turn out to be scabies because there were two other vets who came with us who happened mm-hmm. to be tourists to that particular group who Dr. Richard Koch recognized. And one of them was a small animal vet and one of them was a zoo vet, Dr. Eric Miller and his partner, Dr. Mary Jane Goss. And so when we realized all of them, these three senior vets who accompanied me on this particular first time we ever carried out such an intervention in Bwindi, when they confirmed to me that it really does look like scabies, then we ended up just um, treating that particular gorilla adenicitized. And then we ended up, uh, we went back again a few days later and treated the rest. But in between, we examined samples from him, but the baby gorilla was dropped. And when we did a post-mortem, the mites were still crawling after the baby had died. And they were scabies mites. The next question was, where did it come from? And eventually, 
we found out that it came from people living around the park who have very little health care. And yes, they do have, their, being low-income groups of people, they don't wash their clothes often, they don't uh, bathe that often, and there was a high incidence of scabies in the community. And uh, so everybody asked me to lead a health education workshop to to kind of talk to people about, you know, how they can be healthy and hygienic so people don't pick up scabies. But also there's no open defecation in the garden, which is what you find. It's a case of open defecation. It's a case of um, people leaving out rubbish. So there's lots of things that gorillas could get when they go into people's gardens to eat their banana plants. And so I led this effort. I went together with a community conservation warden and ranger who talked to the communities about the benefits of the wildlife and how they can benefit from it and how tourism can support community conservation mm -hmm. and how they can access these tourism funds. But then also they talk, and we went with the district health assistant who deals with the healthcare of people. And at that time, I didn't realize it was a, it was a One Health team. It's now considered a One Health team. Vets, medical people, public health experts and conservationists going in one team to work together. And so they came up with a lot of great suggestions of how we can improve the situation, better than I was going to propose for them as a vet. And I thought that was another eye-opener, that mm -hmm. when you engage in communities, you don't impose your solutions on them. Let them come up with their solutions. You can point out the problem, but the solution needs to come from them. And so whatever they proposed was generally a One Health blueprint. You know, they kind of said things like, we want health services brought closer to us because I didn't realize that they didn't, they were so far away from the nearest health unit. And when someone falls sick, they have to carry them on a stretcher for 20 miles. So some of them end up just not going to the doctor. They didn't want to make the gorillas sick because many of them were already beginning to realize the benefits of tourism. They were like, well, at least they had heard that their neighbors across the forest were benefiting from tourism. So they, they, they were willing to listen to what we had to say. The second recommendation was they wanted continuous health education. And then the third one was they wanted to strengthen the human gorilla conflict resolution team that has gorillas back to the park when they come out. So that was the third recommendation. And we, we met about, we went to eight villages and spoke to over 1,000 people. And they came up with similar recommendations and grouped them up into those three categories. And a lot of what they said is what led us to, in my mind, I thought to myself, hmm, it would be good to start an NGO that focuses on these issues. So after leaving the government after four and a half years and doing a zoo medicine residency in North Carolina, I decided to focus my research in the zoo medicine residency program and masters at the North Carolina Zoo and the North Carolina State University. I started to do One Health research. And so I decided to focus on tuberculosis because if TB got into the gorillas, it's difficult to treat gorillas for eight months, which gave is one dose of ivermectin actually worked. But with, with TB, you have to give them treatment every single day for eight months, or yeah. maybe every three days if you give them long-acting antibiotics. But for a wild animal, you'd, you'd make them, you'd dehabituate them. They wouldn't stay there any longer. So yeah. we, I was like, okay, TB is a good one also because it's, a disease that was pretty prevalent in the Ugandan community, in low-income groups of people, and there was a big TB and HIV co-infection. And HIV, Uganda was the most open about the HIV, you know, pandemic, and it, if you could call it that, but if, if HIV epidemic, and they, we felt that Uganda was, because we were open, we got a lot of support, 
But mm-hmm. I just looked at what are the main health issues in the community and how can they affect the gorillas and other wildlife. And so my research also taught me a lot about the public health issues in the area because we interviewed people going close to gorillas, including the park rangers and the mm-hmm. communities where gorillas are always going out. And I used the same district health assistant to help me point out areas where communities are always interfacing with gorillas, plus the community mm-hmm. conservation ranger, the same team. We had worked with when we did the health education workshops. And then I also um, looked at tuberculosis in cattle, buffalo and people because we found out that um, people are sometimes drink, eating buffaloes and getting sick. They could get mm-hmm. tuberculosis directly from eating buffaloes in the park or by drinking the milk of cattle that have tuberculosis and this cattle could have grazed with buffaloes. Um, so mm-hmm. it was kind of, it gave me, it taught me a lot about how the public health system is working in Uganda. And in Queen Elizabeth, they did have someone watching you taking your medicine um, for eight months to make sure you took it so that you, you, you completely get better. But in Windy, those people are not yet there. It's a system called Community-Based Direct Observation of Treatment for Short-Course Therapy. In Windy, they were not yet there. Um, and some people, like I, I went there over two summers to do the research. People who I met in the, first, in the summer, the first year, I went back the second year and they had died, which really touched me. And the reason they died is because once they felt better at the hospital with two months treatment, they discharged them and sent them home. And they're supposed to come back every three months for testing mm-hmm. with a friendly neighbor watching them taking medicine. But this time around, there was no friendly neighbor in the Bwindi side where the gorillas are. And these two people died who I was tracking from the first year. So one of the very first programs we felt we needed to set up was the CB dots. So it was, it was through all these experiences that I really discovered that you can't keep the wildlife healthy, especially great apes, when the people who are living next to them are, are not healthy. But also people can easily pick up diseases from wildlife as well. Um, yeah. And so we felt that this NGO should prevent disease in both directions because it's better for their health, welfare and well-being of the animals, the people and the people and their mm-hmm. livestock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting and it's something that I think it's really powerful. And I think it's, I guess, easy to understand when you with those examples exactly why this is important because it is it's we don't exist and it's always something that's interesting in any field of study i suppose that in academia and in kind of certain in certain circles i feel like everything is kind of siloed into we study this thing these people study this thing these people study that thing and like each individual thing but the world doesn't work like that Mm -hmm. veterinarians and human doctors need to interact and all of these conversations need to be had interdisciplinar in interdisciplinarily if that's a word um to to ensure that this work is happening and that we have a full painting and picture of everything that's going on because yes it, it it's 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 really interesting and i think the examples you gave were really interesting because yeah it's easy to picture i think because we can see ourselves in great apes a lot of the time. We can see the way that they act is familiar to us and that we kind of, they they look after their young and they kind of act in ways that as humans, we look at and we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we can see them getting the diseases that we get because we it makes, it, we have that connection already. And it, it, But it's interesting to hear then the other examples, I suppose, that contrast that, like the cheetah example you mentioned or the kind of cattle and kind of bovine strains as well, because it's, it's interesting to hear then that, no, it's not just 
the great apes that can this impact it it goes beyond that and that we are all connected in this this system and it's it's really really interesting really really fascinating work i <laughs> Something that you said that I kind of was intrigued by was kind of like you you worked with local communities a lot and kind of yes to to come up with the kind of solutions and the things that you needed to to work with. I wonder, kind of going the the other way. Obviously, there's you can work with local communities to a certain extent, and then you. But also, I suppose there is maybe a point where you want to work with government as well or policymakers. Is that when you're did you communicate in both of those directions and i suppose what were the differences in the the ways that you communicated was it a challenge to kind of do do kind of work with these two very very different groups of people i suppose yes actually um having been a, a government officer a government mm-hmm. you know wildlife vet for four and a half years i only saw yeah. the perspective of what it's like to be that on that side of the coin but then um, the TB research I did, you know, in between opened up my eyes because mm-hmm. we started engaging communities and one community really didn't want us. They were not interested in us at all. One was happy mm-hmm. to see us, the one around Windy, mm-hmm. because they're getting a lot of benefits from the park. Because when that national park was created in the late in the 90s, it was all about um, engaging communities in conservation. And 90% of the people employed from the area, employed in the national park, were from the local community. Former poachers were being hired as rangers. We used to call them born again poachers. <laughs> Earning more money protecting wildlife rather than killing. So there was a nice, you know, people were excited that gorillas are there and we're finding another way to earn a living. Whereas in the older parks, the Queen Elizabeth National Park, where I first went as a high school student, it was different. They were created in the 50s when it was fences and fines, wildlife in, people out, people arrested. Mm-hmm. The only way of managing wildlife was through law enforcement. And so when we started the TB research in Queen Elizabeth, the cattle keepers, would, the first year, they wouldn't allow us to touch their cows. And I thought, okay, I'm coming back in the second year. So instead of trying to push the issue, let me understand why they don't really like the park and why they're reluctant for us to sample their cattle. Because we had a questionnaire asking about tuberculosis and conservation issues that are affecting them and public health issues. And so it gave me a better understanding when we came back the second summer, how how to engage them more effectively. But even in engaging them more effectively, we had to work with the government. They really loved that vet, the district vet officer, because he was always out there helping them. He's a highly dedicated vet, Dr. Godfrey Kalule and Dr. Tumushabe. So when the vet said, we're not lifting quarantine until we see your cows, it was quarantine for foot and mouth disease. And knowing that these are their vets who care about them, they were like, they knew that I was a vet, but they were like, just like wildlife. So you're not going to, you don't, you don't care about domestic animals. You only care about wild animals. And I said, no, actually I'm a vet. I'm trained to treat all animals. I like all animals, whether they're wild or domestic. I'm trained to, I'm concerned with the welfare of all animals. But then having the district vet with me, we're able then to sample their cows, we're able to start treating their animals. And later on, we really worked closely in that community, working, we helped to set up community animal health workers who we taught Mm -hmm. how to treat the animals for simple ailments, animal husbandry, deworming, and now they really like us. But it took a while to get to know them. In Buindi's situation, the the domestic animal vets never used to come out there. They never, because it was so remote. It was much remote, more remote than Queen Elizabeth. So what we did is, we, to work with the government, we brought the district vets there for the first time. And he was like, wow, 
and he had so much knowledge. But he said the reason he didn't go out there is it's a lot of one and a half hour drive. He said, I can't drive for one and a half hours to treat a chicken. <laughs> the, chicken <laughs> the chicken is not worth the fuel of driving all that way. And he had just never been to Windy, but he was fascinated because he realized, wow, the gorillas, they bring in a lot of money. Mm-hmm. People have cows, goats, let's start working with them. But like, but what we did in conservation through public health is what we did is we brought the human health authorities together yeah. with the wildlife community, the wildlife management community, and the livestock health community. So then we started to engage. Whenever we had a meeting with the village health and conservation teams, we started off by yeah. calling them community conservation health workers, where we mm-hmm. basically got people who could improve community health and talk about and community conservation attitudes at the same time. So we got them to hire one person from each village. They're actually the ones who said, we're going to hire one person from each village. Not hiring, but recruiting, because they're volunteers. Get them recruited, get them to talk to their community about good health, public health practices, because they didn't want to make the gorillas sick. Some of them were already benefiting from tourism, but also they realized it's good for them too. Um, and so we, that person was promoting good health and hygiene. They also promoted why we should protect gorillas why we should be healthy and hygienic so we don't make them sick, but also why we shouldn't go into the forest to poach because you can pick up diseases from other species mm-hmm. such as, you know, the bush pigs, the dikers. But then also they also talked about why we shouldn't cut the forest and, you know, other things around conservation, water mm-hmm. catchment, forest protection. And so that group of people we started to work closely with. But whenever we have a meeting with them, we always involve the government people. We bring in the wildlife authority we bring in the district health people, and sometimes you also bring in the district veterinary authorities, depending on the topic. But as a bare, minim, bare minimum, we always have health people there, human health people mm-hmm. there, and wildlife management people there, because we want to show them that we are all working together. So as an NGO, we have played an, a role of bringing together these different disciplines at meetings. Mm-hmm. And at these meetings, they'll train people or they'll discuss their issues. You know, For example, there's a case when people are like, we want to go into the forest to access medicinal plants because that's something they used to do before it became a national park and they weren't allowed in. And so the warden would say there are areas where we allow people to go in for medicinal plants that are not tourist zones. But why don't you plant some of these plants in your own garden so you don't have to always go in to collect them? You would have discussions like that. And then the human health people would talk to them about, please look out for people in your communities who are coughing, refer them to us in time, and then we even started to talk about family planning later on when we got additional funding from USAID. The first funding we got to, dis- to strengthen community-based direct reservation or treatment came from the Irish government mm-hmm. and Development Corporation Ireland. And that was really exciting. It was the very first public health funding because they wanted to support um, healthcare, but they wanted the environment to also be protected. So they liked our project because it was... Um, also doing something for the environment, the gorillas. So we got our very first public health funding from the Irish government, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, so, so it's been like an evolving, it's been like a journey. And that's why, like, um, the subtitle is The Journey of an African Mother Fit, because we've been discovering One Health as we went along and how to, engage, how to work closely with the human health authorities and the wildlife mm-hmm. authorities and the veterinary authorities to bring everything together and the benefits it brings for all the animals and the people and the environment and conservation. So it's been a journey 
or time and you know and and that's the thing i've noticed is that you may propose something but when you get on the ground you realize actually this is more useful or this is a better way to do it yeah and so yeah it's been a very interesting journey but it's a very exciting journey and it's still continuing actually <laughs> yes i was gonna say that it, it's probably a journey that will never never fully be done it'll be something that you'll have to pass down to the next people and the next people and the next people because it is it's one of these things that will every iteration hopefully it will get better and the collaborations will become stronger and everything will become more of a system that works together whereas you had the really tough job of having to start that ball rolling I suppose and, and get it all kind of start that journey um and no I, it's really interesting because actually for me it's really interesting because obviously this whole podcast started as a kind of investigation in during the pandemic the COVID-19 pandemic into the pangolin specifically and maybe it was having a, a rough time at the time this kind of came out because there was that perception of it being linked to disease and so it's interesting to hear about the kind of yeah the kind of um the behind the scenes all of the thought process and all of the different groups and all of the different actions that have to take place to to get this kind of thinking and and this ball rolling and and yeah, as the pangolin, I suppose, proves, as the the journey will keep going because these things will keep to crop up, cropping up, whether it be in gorillas or whether it be in pangolins or whether it be in um, whatever the next species might be, these things will keep keep happening. Um, and I guess, yes. how do you see, since you mentioned the journey continuing, how do you see this concept and everything evolving in the future? Is it something that you kind of have thought a lot about or worry about or is it something that you kind of think okay now we've got a good set of tools maybe to deal with it how is it what what is it kind of that you think about the future of one health and, and how it will develop um i'll say that uh one health came into maturity during the covid pandemic i was talking yeah. about it with vets who i've worked with some of them have mentored me and uh, we were just saying that you know it was somewhere in the middle of the pandemic like 2021 where we just said to ourselves I think One Health is coming into maturity because of the yeah. pandemic. Because before you tell people that you're addressing human health and animal health together, they're like, you're crazy. You know, when you'd, when you'd um, talk to donors and say, human health donors and say, can you fund, you know, prevention, gorilla health, gorilla conservation, they're like, we're not animal people. We don't fund animal work. But then when you go to conservation donors and say, we need to fund, you need to support people, who are unhealthy and they're making gorillas sick they're like that's that's public health we don't fund people in that way yeah that's public health but during the pandemic people are like ah now we see what you're talking about because you know although it hasn't yet been proven where the SARS-CoV-2 came from but the previous two strains which are very similar to SARS-CoV-2 which is SARS-CoV and SARS which um, basically you know came from uh, the intermediate host was a civet cat the bat coronavirus and then MERS in Middle East, where the intermediate host was a dromedary camel. Um, and over here, you know, started somewhere in China, from what we see. And we still, the pangolin came up as, oh, the intermediate host is probably a pangolin. Then, the, then there was no proof for that. Um, yeah. And we're still searching for the intermediate host. But there's more and more, it's becoming, the search continues. And actually, I was very excited to serve on, uh, I'm on serving on the World Health Organization scientific advisory committee for origin of novel pathogens which came about in 2020 i think it's 20, towards the end of 2021 they were like now we need to prevent future pandemics and we need to set up frameworks that can prevent future pandemics as we're still looking for the source of COVID. so we, we were assigned to help to set up frameworks 
prevent future pandemics, but also to try and con advise on future studies to find out the source of mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2. And so, like the COVID pandemic, we don't know where it came from, but all we know is that it spread very rapidly in people. And now yeah. then it started jumping from people to animals. You know, whether it's people back to animals or people to animals, <laughs> still a big debate. But it did jump. It just showed that it can cross between species, you know. Yeah. And the gorillas was a victim. The gorillas in uh, San Diego Zoo and Zoo Atlanta got COVID from asymptomatic keepers. Um, yeah. The deer, I mean, the mink, so many mink got COVID and had to be cowed, unfortunately, in Denmark and the Netherlands. And other species as well. Um, a lot of people's cats and dogs, you know, had antibodies mm. to COVID and deer in America. So it's, it's showing that it jumps between species. And when it jumps to the next species, it can mutate further, then it's harder to treat and vaccinate against. So mm. it's a fear, but the, the way it's played out, and it's been a long time, a lot of these other diseases would last for a short time, but COVID has played out a long enough time that everybody's understanding One Health much better. That if you want to keep people healthy, animals have to remain healthy. You have to attend to animal health. If you want to keep animals healthy, you have to attend to human health. And that uh -huh. really reinforced what we've been doing for the past 20 years. Actually, this year we celebrate 20 years of conservation through public health, which is very exciting. So um, it's been a journey and an exciting journey. And as I said, where do I see it going in the future? I think there's going to be a lot more like there's an increased awareness about this. Um, there's increased awareness that zoonotic diseases are very important for conservation, for not only for public health, because they affect humans and animals, but they're important for conservation. They're important for tourism. You know, they affect the travel market. They affect sustainable development. They can bring countries to their knees. Economies as big as USA and UK have been brought to their knees because of the COVID pandemic. Even China is struggling with it. Um, so it basically shows that in the future, we really need to pay much more attention to yeah. zoonotic diseases how can, and preventing the next one because it paralyzes not only the, peop the health of people and animals, but it paralyzes economies, and, you know, it leads, which leads to so many other detrimental benefits. You know, just in Brindy alone, poaching went up during the COVID pandemic and a gorilla was killed because of it. Uh, Rafiki. Um, and so it's, yeah, I think in the, in the future, people are going to see a lot more how One Health is, is beyond just disease, but has so many other things involved. And more and more, um, the field of practice is going to expand and integrate other sectors as well. That's where I see the, the One Health field going. No, that's 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 really interesting, and again, really interesting examples, and that, like interesting to hear, yeah, how you brought it back to the pangolin and all of these things, because it's something that yeah we hear about more and more, and I think with the public consciousness around it, you had kind of people talking about the kind of pangolin and trafficking during COVID and all this sort of stuff, and now I don't know if it's similar for where you're based, but it, it seems now every time there's an outbreak of anything the media is talking about it more than they ever would have before. So, for example, in the UK right now, there's a lot of talk around avian flu and how that's kind of jumping between species. And I think it was found in, in seals recently, which obviously mm -hmm. live around the, the coastal bird colonies. And so all of these things tend to be talked about more, which 
it it doesn't make it it better but it encourages more people to think about it i guess and more people to talk about it and hopefully results in more work being done on it in the long term which is is really important and really really yeah really interesting really really interesting um yeah actually everyone thinks that avian flu well some people think avian flu could be the next pandemic if we're not careful and i was mm. interviewed about it actually at the royal vet college where mm. i went uh we had an event there last week and i was interviewed about it um, yeah. um by cgtn and i was yeah it was interesting they asked we talked they talked about avian flu and so did one someone interviewed me in the observer magazine so i think it's the next fear everybody's because it can jump between species any yeah. disease that can jump between species and two humans yeah is, is something that we really need to worry about and you know there's ebola there's marburg there's anthrax there's a whole range of diseases rabies so many brucellosis tuberculosis scabies mm -hmm. and uh, the list unfortunately is getting longer mm -hmm. <laughs> of emerging and re-emerging infections so we need to be much more careful yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess it's it's a tricky one because normally at this stage in the interview, I suppose I would ask if it's somebody talking about local conservation in terms of like species that are in people's back gardens or whatever. Like, there's obvious things that maybe the listeners can can do, and we can talk about solutions that maybe everybody can can be a part of. But I guess for for you, like that, it's it's maybe less clear in this scenario. But you talked a little bit, I guess, about it's. Did you say 20 years of your organization? Um, yes. Which is, I'm gonna, when it comes to acronyms, I always mess them up. CTPH, which, yes, yes, I, yes, <laughs> I didn't get the letters mixed up. Um, and it's really, I work for the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, which is RBGE. And the number Whoa. of times I've called it RGEB or RGEF, <laughs> I just get them all mixed up. So, yes, <laughs> 20 years of your organization, CTPH. Um, and so I guess that's how you look at solutions. That's how you look, I guess, towards maybe like, like people can be more involved in organization like that. Like, could you tell us a little bit about what that does? And I, I know you, specifically you kind of do work with coffee and things so could you tell us about about that yes at ctph conservation yes. through public health we have three integrated programs and one of them mm -hmm. is wildlife health wildlife conservation mm -hmm. with a focus on wildlife health and habitat protection and then community health with a focus on one health where we look at mm -hmm. look at disease of people animals and the environment together and other mm -hmm. issues around it um and then we have alternative livelihoods, which came about more a few years after beginning focusing mainly on wildlife health and community health, because we realized that the gorillas are species and wildlife are species, but they live in a habitat. Mm -hmm. And as long as the habitat is not secure, the species are, have, are greatly threatened. And so that's when we started to look at things like promoting community-based family planning, where people can now have the children they can manage. So they don't have to always enter the forest to poach and collect firewood. But then we also started alternative livelihoods where people can get, you know, a good price for good coffee. Often when you're going to trek and visit the gorillas, you always cross coffee farms and you'll find that those farmers are not getting a fair market or a steady price. And they're still entering the forest to poach and collect firewood. And so we give them a good price for good coffee and a donation can also go to support the work to improve community health in the same communities and gorilla health and conservation education. So we do, with the gorilla health program, or the wildlife health program, we basically built a gorilla health and community conservation center at Windy, mm -hmm. it's a field laboratory, plus a community education center, mainly. Mm -hmm. 
um, where we regularly analyze non-invasive fecal samples from gorillas to check for diseases they could be sharing with the local community or the livestock or just amongst themselves. And then this enables us then to know whether we should get the livestock dewormed and the local community dewormed so the gorillas are not picking up human parasites or any other disease. And during the COVID pandemic, there's a big focus on testing the gorillas for SARS-CoV-2 because it's COVID, as long as, as along with the community, making sure that the health authorities test the people who come close to gorillas and uh, try making sure that we act ahead of time and prevent anything big happening, you know, prevent the gorillas picking up COVID. And so we do a lot of health monitoring in the wildlife, checking out for clinical signs, but it's not just us to do it. We do a lot of empowering the community to take care of their own wildlife, including the health of their own wildlife. So we have gorilla guardians who are trained to herd gorillas back to the park. We train them to also monitor the health of the gorillas when they're in community land and collect fecal samples from them. And even if they're abnormal, they can tell us they're abnormal and then they're monitored more frequently. Then the rangers are the main people looking after the gorillas and they're trained in all of this. And they're also trained to manage tourists because an, a very big issue that came is the threat has always been the tourists can give gorillas diseases. Mm -hmm. As much as the community, poor community public health was leading to gorillas picking up diseases, but also the community, the tourists, if they come, they can cough on the gorillas and give them a fatal disease like COVID and they can die. So mm -hmm. we have to be very careful. And so we help, we train the rangers to manage tourists. When they come, they all must wear masks. Mask wearing mm -hmm. started during the pandemic. They have to wear masks. They have to maintain a distance. It's always been 10 meters, but sometimes it's broken by people or gorillas, because gorillas are very curious <laughs> and they're friendly and accommodating. Um, but as people have to wear masks, they have to be healthy when they visit. The temperatures are taken before they go in. And so there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, health care for the people to protect the gorillas um, as we monitor the health of the gorillas. So th those are kind of our three main integrated programs. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, what the way that we can get a lot of people to help is, you know, we do get a lot of tourists who visit from all over the world, from UK and all over the world, and they come and they, they learn about our work. Um, they can visit our Gorilla Health and Community Conservation Center. They can give a donation. Some of them volunteer. Um, they come later on and become volunteers. In various expertise, we also engage school children in, in the conservation education programs. Um, and we teach them to, sometimes we do it through sports, like there's the Windy Kids League, Impenetrable Kids League, which a volunteer helped us to start up, Guy Hodkinson, based in in, U in England, with his, his parents, they helped to sponsor that. Um, we also more recently are working, we've worked with um, organizations like Disney to support, to continue to grow the program with other schools, but we've also worked with um, more recently, National Geographic has funded a STEAM project where we're doing science, technology, engineering, math, but also adding arts and working with 10 to 24-year-old groups, getting them to come up with projects. So people can support in many ways. We, get, we had a vet student recently who came to, we were looking at bacteria in the people and the gorillas um, and the livestock. And this particular vet student was also interested in education. So she went and did a, a session a school, and helped the kids to come up with nice drawings and things you know in one of the schools because she liked that as well so we do we do encourage all kinds of you know volunteering we have research partnerships with universities mm -hmm. 
um, in UK and US and other countries. We also um, encourage people, of course, to buy the Gorilla Conservation Coffee, wherever they are. Yeah. Um, because even if you can't visit the gorillas, you can still support them by buying the coffee because you prevent mm -hmm. someone going into the forest to poach, to collect firewood because we're able to pay them then uh, a good price for good coffee. So there are all so many different things that we do. Um, and whatever expertise people have enables people, us to engage the communities more meaningfully and to protect the gorillas better and, and other wildlife. So. There are many different ways that people can get engaged, but they can also spread the word. Um, yeah. We have a, they can sign up for our e-newsletter. Sorry, these are my dogs. <laughs> right, <laughs> I wondered going, what going. that was. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, please. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so they're being very. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so those are all the different ways that we can engage um, people in our work. Visit our website. Follow us on social media. And uh, mm -hmm. they can also buy Walking with Gorillas <laughs> and learn about all, all about our One Health approach to conservation and how, which really is a, a detail, detailed, my person, a detailed personal account of this journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, that's perfect. I think that's actually like, that's so interesting. And I think it covered so many things that people who are kind of interested in a, a way of conservation where they want to kind of equip themselves with knowledge can get involved if people want to buy stuff and support financially and are able to do that they can do that as well so like it's really a, per a perfect answer to that question and yes of course the links for all of those things will be in the description of this episode so people if, if people are interested in the book or the coffee or anything else i'll put all of the links in the description so listeners go down you can click now purchase the book um, and do everything else because it's it's been fascinating it's been really really fascinating to to hear i guess like thank you so much it... yeah we have a great distributor in the uk money robins mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. they also ship to scotland they're based in maidenhead and i did an Perfect. event there as well and uh yeah. she started during the pandemic because uh -huh. we were stuck we didn't with the lack of tourism yeah. People poaching went up because people are used to getting money from tourists mm -hmm. to buy food. And now there are no tourists because of lockdowns all over the world and also want to protect the mm -hmm. gorillas from human disease. And then um, in May 2020, she placed the first order so we could at least keep the coffee mm -hmm. farmers growing. And then yeah. in June 2020, unfortunately, this, uh, the lead silverback of Grigo Gorilla Group was speared by a hungry bushmeat poacher. And then we realized that people are poaching because they're hungry. And we decided to provide fast growing seedlings to them. Um, and uh, all through the pandemic, Vicky from Money Robins has placed so many orders, over 15 orders now, and it's, it's just kept going. So it's some of the, like even providing ready-to-grow food, fast-growing seedlings, is something we're continuing beyond the pandemic. And that's something else that became part of our One Health approach to conservation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying One Health is continuing to evolve. Responsible tourism has become a part of it, food security, because yeah. we're promoting responsible tourism to great apes in all the countries in Africa that have great apes, working with closely with International Gorilla Conservation Program. So we are, they, they helped to set up tourism in Uganda and we are now like taking the lessons learned from Uganda to other countries where people have gorillas and chimps so that people have to go ready to wear masks, ready to yeah. maintain a respectable distance, but also ready to buy crafts or give back to the community. Because when a community member meets a tourist and they give them money, then they're much less likely to enter the forest to poach because they benefited directly. Mm -hmm.
That's really fascinating. And I was going to ask about tourism, actually. So you've already kind of beat me to the question of like, <laughs> do you how did you see tourism evolve? Because you mentioned how it can be, it's changing. And so it's interesting to hear like how it is changing and exactly why it is changing and the benefits of it adapting and how it can benefit everyone. So that's really fascinating. Really, really fascinating. Um, yeah, this is a policy brief we developed during the pandemic, uh-huh. both in English and French. Because most of the wildlife is found in Francophone and Anglophone countries. And we were trying to basically, you know, it was geared towards the government, donors and tour operators, tour companies that bring in tourists. Because they're the ones who market the experience before the tourists arrive. But trying to get people to come in ready to be a responsible tourist. We also developed a website called protectgreatapesfromdisease.com. And that website is, it was developed... Um, in a partnership with the University of Exeter because they work with chimpanzees in Guinea-Bissau, Cantonese mm-hmm. National Park, where there's a small level of tourism. And they, they asked us if we could partner with them to develop this whole website. We also mm-hmm. worked with uh, One Health Vet, um, who Dr. Fabian Yandet, who used to work for Robert Koch Institute. And he does a lot of primates and zoonotic disease work in, in West Africa. So we kind of all got together and came up with this website, protectgreatapesfromdisease.com. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. And I'll put that in the description for anyone who's curious to go and like have a look and, and learn more, because that sounds really, really interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dr. Kim Hawkins was working in University of Exeter, and she kind right. of led the effort from that side. So again, it was, mm-hmm. you know, a great ape primatologist um, working yeah. together with vets and One Health experts too. Another One Health initiative to come up with yeah. protectgreatapesfromdisease.com. <laughs> Again, the be- the benefits of breaking down those silos and talking across disciplines seem like, yeah, if you can get the language and everybody understands and everybody knows what we're doing and under- like, that's, it's, it's fantastic. That's really, really interesting. Really, really, like really interesting um and as someone who like works like a lot of my work that i've done is interdisciplinary in nature so i'm like loving all of these good examples that i can now use whenever i talk to people about it and go look it works we can like we can make (laughs) things that really really function well if we talk to each other that's it's it's fascinating i guess like i i'm looking at the clock and unfortunately we are we're kind of running out of time and so there's a couple questions that I usually kind of ask everybody to to wrap up um the conversation. Um and so I guess we should we should move on to those and if you want any more details listeners about any of the stories we've we've talked about so far get the book read the book and then I'm sure like you will fall in love even more with these stories and be even more intrigued by them. Um and so the questions that I want to ask you now though are the first of them I've asked everybody this series because this series has been a celebration of the continent of Africa and conservation stories that take place in all of the different countries up and down, up and down that continent. Though it's such an incredibly biodiverse place, there's so many different kind of biomes and things up and down, and so many different species and things to love. And we can't cover them all on the podcast individually. So I'm asking everybody, what like if you could hi- highlight one of the species on the podcast, an underappreciated African species. What would it be, and and why would you you want to highlight it? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I always tell people that the gorillas l- don't live in the forest alone. Yes, they are the flagship yeah. species at Windy Bentrobo National Park, which has half in, and close to half of the world's 
1,063 mountain gorillas, but we also have in the chimpanzees, elephants, uh, over 200 species of butterflies and 300 species of birds and four other, four monkeys. But we also have species like the pangolin. The pangolin, which is one of the most widely trafficked species in the world, now, you know, following the elephants and the rhinos, is also found in windy forest. And you see them on camera traps. Um, so one time we were having a TV program called Engine Science Show, which is mm-hmm. focusing on promoting, getting children, you know, children to, to engage in science and to love science, especially girls, getting girls engaged in science. So they look for female role models as scientists to go with children. Mm-hmm. So I happened to go with two children from Windy Community, um, two teenagers, plus my teenage son and his younger brother, who was 11 or 12 at the time. So we... Tendo was 11 at the time. So we went to Windy and um, we went into the forest. And what was interesting is, although the whole program was focused around gorillas, mm-hmm. um, the 11-year-old wasn't allowed to see the gorillas because you can only see them when you're 15. So we gave him the role of, um, because of childhood diseases and behavior disturbance. So he has to wait till mm-hmm. he's 15 because he can see the, before he can see the gorillas. So he was given the role of setting up the camera trap close by the edge of the forest. Um, where we know that there are no gorillas in that, there were no gorillas ranging there at that time. So he, um, as we're getting ready to do it, somebody came with a box and inside was a pangolin that had been rescued from the local community close to the border with Democratic Republic of Congo. And as we went and set up the camera trap, they wanted us, they needed the camera we had to picture this pangolin being released. So we had the opportunity to see the camera, the pangolin being released. As we were able to hold the pangolin, they were all able to feel the scales. What does it feel like? It was a really fascinating Mm -hmm. science lesson for them. Then we released the pangolin, and it made people realize that this forest, yes, it has the mountain gorillas, but it also has rare, you know, endangered species like the pangolin that need to be protected. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it was a very... I feel that we should throw more light on that. They're difficult to see. It's hard to say that you're going to have them for tourism, but they're such an important, you know species in the habitat and they're playing their only important role in the habitat mm-hmm. and they need to be protected and not trafficked around the world yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. great that you're focusing on them and you yes. love them you should come out to uganda and see the gorillas we may promise that you may see a pangolin but we can't <laughs> commit to it <laughs> i i will turn up people keep saying this to me on the podcast of like you should come and visit and i will one day i will come i think now i've got like five or six countries i'll need to do like a tour of africa down i think namibia south africa (laughs) and then up to like uganda again and then i there's definitely a tour that needs to be done because i think yeah it would be fascinating to see and it's amazing to hear you kind of mention them because i feel like yes it's the name of the show we have to get as much promo for them as possible um and so (laughs) yes it's it's fascinating that and interesting to hear such a like personal story and i feel like actually the 11 year old got the best deal in the end if he got to see a pangolin which is probably a harder the gorillas he'll probably be able to see a bit easier when he's 15 the people who go in like most people will not see a pangolin so that's incredible incredible (laughs) i Um, know his his older brother wrote a book actually zookeeper for a week when he worked at the zoo for a week and so amazing and yeah, now his younger brother got to see a pangolin. So yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um it's very rare species to see. Yeah, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but so important and so endangered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. well, just like the gorillas. 
<laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I guess then that leads us to my, my final, final question. And the final question I always like to ask everybody is kind of for a bit of advice for listeners or people out there who have been inspired, um, if they're listening, what they can do. And I think specifically for you, because we talked at the beginning, I guess, about you saw yourself in these kind of like fascinating and amazing and incredible women like Dr. Jane Goodall. And when I've mentioned that you're coming on the show to like colleagues, they've been like, she's amazing. Like, I don't like it's, and they talk about how like, and it's amazing how you have kind of broken down barriers in what is a field that is largely dominated by by men and so I was interested to hear from your perspective maybe advice for the people who are now looking up to you as your their Dr Jane Goodall what would you say to them as like some like yeah if they if they're looking for advice um to keep them going or to pursue a career in the field oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> um I would say that um uh... Being focused is really important. Um, mm-hmm. The words that uh, Dr. Burita Gaudikas wrote in a book that I bought from her when I was a vet student was mm-hmm. follow your dreams and the rest will follow. And yeah. I, I believe that that has really guided me. Yes, I was doing something very unique at the time. Um, I was training as a vet, which also there were, not, there were very few female vets in Uganda at the time, mm-hmm. very male-dominated field. But then not only was I training as a vet, but here I am becoming a wildlife vet, the first wildlife vet in the country, trying to convince people that we should treat wildlife when they're thinking, no, wildlife should be left on its own. What are you doing treating wildlife? Um, and just, you know, being really determined to see it through and not get discouraged or distracted easily. So I would, I would imagine, I would say that, um, you know, for people out there who want to follow this field, especially young women, you know, follow your dreams and the rest will follow. The right partner will come along. My husband is a, I discovered, we, we met, uh, we got married just, I would say, he was the first donor to the NGO. I'd say we, mm-hmm. he donated to the new non-profit house beginning with $100 from him and $100 from me. We put up a bounce account in the US mm-hmm. just before we got married. And so he's been with me all through and he initiated the Gorilla Conservation Coffee Social Enterprise because he came more from the corporate sector. So it's the right partner will come along who will help you to follow your dreams and achieve your dreams. So I think that's what I would really like to say to most young women. Don't worry. Don't get so discouraged by what society thinks you should or you shouldn't be doing. You should just continue to follow your dreams and the rest will follow. Mm-hmm. That's that's <laughs> perfect advice. Perfect, perfect advice, I think, to to wrap up on and I think something that all of us can think about whether they are thinking of pursuing specifically a wildlife vet career or whatever the career is I think that's something that a lot of us can take away and and think about um I guess then before I say thank you a huge thank you for being here I want to give you one last opportunity tell people where can they get the book where can they follow you where can they learn more about your work like is there anything else that we've not mentioned yet that you want to promote (laughs) is there anything that, that people should go and look up Yes, well, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking mm-hmm. with you. Um, at bo- the book can be, Walking with Gorillas can be found on Amazon and please buy it and write a review. It's also available in the UK in Waterstones and Blackwells and Heifers. Actually, mm-hmm. both, all three bookshops helped during the book tour I've just had in the UK, either by bringing books to like the vet school or to Emmanuel College in Cambridge where my brother went in the 70s or just by at the bookshop. But uh, you can also 
find the book in independent bookstores. I know um, somebody interviewed me and said she got it in an independent bookstore. So they're available mm -hmm. there. And in America, it's available on Barnes & Noble and many other independent bookstores like Ruman's mm -hmm. and and uh, Tata Cover and the Gibson's Bookstore and Boulder's mm -hmm. Bookstore. Um, and lots of places. It's it's found it's it's found in many independent bookstores, but also in other countries around the world on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, I think as I speak now, there must be about seventy or so places you can find it. And <laughs> just go to Uganda. We are having a book event next week. Um, it's, it's, it's in Uganda at our Gorilla Conservation Cafe in Entebbe, where we uh -huh. only serve coffee from the farmers where gorillas are found. But it's also going to be in the Ugandan bookshops like Aristok. It's already at Mahiri Online Bookstore, and we're hoping it to be available in exclusive books in South Africa and some bookstores in Kenya, um, Nigeria and other countries around the world. I know it's already there in Australia. Um, I don't know whether it's online version or the hardcover, but it's, it's set to go to India, Japan, Australia and other countries. The, I'm really grateful to Skyhorse Publishing. They've got an amazing distribution network and they've really, really helped promote the book. They're a, pu mm -hmm. a wonderful publisher. On top of getting me to write the book I want to write, <laughs> they also really helped promote it all over the yeah. world, in America and other countries in the world. So I'm really grateful to them and to the book editor, Lily Golden, and to Nas, the book, my book agent who's based in UK. Um, yeah. you no, know, it's been a very exciting journey. Catherine Menon, who's hoping to make sure it's distributed everywhere. We're always on conference calls with her. She's like, we need to get the books there in time before your event, before this. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. I've actually learned a lot. Like, I know what it's like being an author is not just writing the book, but yeah. you spend almost as much time promoting it as writing it. I'm finding out, <laughs> <laughs> which no one told me about. No other author told me about this, but I used to always see Jane Goodall going around the world. Um, yeah promoting her book and, you know, giving talks. And I'm like, I didn't realize she didn't tell me when she said, congratulations on publishing your book. She didn't tell me how much time it's going to take promoting it. And so when uh, one of the talks in Boston, a lady is now a professor Tuft. She's, she's an older vet um, who I've known for many years, Dr. Felicia Nata, also worked with uh, wildlife gorillas as well, mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. um, she's done a lot of work with wildlife in America and Africa. And she kind of said to me, she came to the talk. She's like, you're, not, you're now like Jane Goodall because she had first worked with chimpanzees <laughs> in Gombe when I met her. And she, you know, she, she's really, Jane Goodall is, mm -hmm. has really inspired her. They know each other. She's like, you're now like Jane Goodall. You're, you know, and so I was like, it looks like I'm, you know, giving talks and selling books yeah. and promoting, you know, doing a lot of awareness and advocacy, protecting yeah. species. Um, yeah, no, I've been very inspired by her. In fact, at the Edinburgh Waterstones, her, somebody she worked very closely with, Dr. Anthony Collins, uh, mm. made opening remarks about me before we had the Q&A with Cassie from MNG. And he said to me, which was so interesting, is that they noticed that there was a young Ugandan student who was always coming to the talks of Jane Goodall. <laughs> and that was me so many years ago. <laughs> And oh, then, you know, and she did say to me when the first talk that come and visit us in Gombe. But he's, uh, it's interesting how he said mm -hmm. they noticed that I was always appearing at her talks and wondering. Mm. So they started following me closely. And yeah, so mm -hmm. that's that was very interesting. <laughs> he focused yeah. on baboons, um, which um, and he's a, the world expert on baboons, Dr. Anthony Collins. He also is living in Edinburgh right now. <laughs> I'm going to write that down as a potential future guest for the podcast. Oh, okay. oh, he would be fantastic. He would be fantastic, actually. He has 
a lot of experience having worked in Gombe since the 70s under Dr. J- with Jane, Dr. Jane Goodall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That's yeah. I, I, his name is written down, so he'll be getting an email at some point from me being like, "Excuse me, sorry to be a bother, but I think you'd be a great guest." No, that's fantastic. <laughs> and yes, it's been so good to chat and hear all of your stories and everything that you've done. And like, I can't wait to like. I'm the, my first stop tomorrow morning is going to be the Edinburgh Watersons that has the signed copies because I want my own signed copy that I can sit somewhere and be like, I know I've talked to her. She's amazing. Um, so no, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. And Thank I, you so, I also so just wanted to mention that my mom has been a great inspiration in my life. I've been Aww. so lucky. She's supported me from the very beginning. Even if I wanted to do something that the society in Uganda thought was strange for a woman to do. Um, mm-hmm. And she just supported me. Even when I said I want to be a vet and other people said you should just be a medical doctor um, because vets were not considered important enough in society. Mm-hmm. But I said, I, would, I don't want to see animals suffering and I want to be a vet. So she's been great. And she went to Edinburgh University with my dad in the 50s. So she's, she was so excited that I was back there in Waterstones and <laughs> giving a talk at the bookstore. And I was there a yeah. year ago when we won the Edinburgh Medal for Planetary mm-hmm. Health. Um, yeah. And so she was also so excited about that yeah and she That's um amazing yeah the planet the edinburgh meadow science festival took me out for a celebratory dinner last week which is also very exciting <laughs> that is a, that's amazing amazing and yeah shout out to all of the mums out there actually who push us yes. to be our very best and in, encourage us to do all these amazing she, she wrote an autobiography things. my life is butter weaving um she's one of the first female politicians and her mm-hmm. that's time she spent in edinburgh really empowered her mm-hmm. she came back um, as someone who, as a female leader, and a fe- she's now become a, one of the female icons in Uganda, who's encouraged many women to join politics and be part of the women's movement. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I need to get her on the, like, I need to read this. I need to, like, I, there's a whole other podcast here that I want to hear her <laughs> story. This is amazing. That's fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. And, like, I ca- yeah, yeah, I can't thank you enough because I'm going to like, I feel like we touched on some heavy topics, but I love when I come to a podcast and we talk about interesting, difficult things, but I still leave with a smile because like you've been such an inspirational speaker. So thank you so much for telling me like all of these things and the way that you talked about it has been so beautiful and fantastic. And I know the listeners are going to love it. So thank you so, so much. Um, I will put, as I say, all of the description for all of in the description of this episode, I'll put all of the different things that you've mentioned down there so people can go and look and learn more, find the book, find the coffee, find all of the different things that you've done. And they can um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and also yeah. on LinkedIn as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. And while they're there, they can follow us as well because we're at Pangolin yes. Podcast on all of those. Um, oh, fantastic. They, yeah, they can do, just get a little bit of self-promo in there as well. They can do that. Um, and yes, so thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Um, as I say, follow us on social media. Please subscribe and leave a nice review for the podcast if you've if you've made it to the end because I, I, it's been so great and you are one of many fantastic guests we've had on the podcast this series. So listeners go and investigate other ones if this is your first time time here um but for now all that remains i guess for me to say is another huge thank you thank you gladys and a huge thank you listeners and until next time goodbye everyone thank you so much (laughs) 